Man, you guys sound great. You're welcome. We're continuing our walk through Matthew's gospel. Uh, before we turn our attention to God's word, just a few uh, quick announcements about what's going on in the life of our church. Uh, we've talked now for a few weeks about our parenting conference, uh, Q&A, which is happening tonight. Uh, the details for that are in the bulletin. We're looking forward to that. Uh, we do want you to come to our fall festival uh, on Wednesday evening. It'll be here at the church. We'll eat in the fellowship hall in the backyard, Lord willing, the um, weather will be good for that. Uh, there will be a, a chili cook-off. Uh, you can win a trophy. Into that sort of, exactly. Uh, and a costume contest. So it uh, should be a lot of fun and a good opportunity for us to gather as a family. Uh, one thing that is coming up that I want to tell you about um, the church here at Grace Fellowship is led by two offices, elders and deacons, uh, and those men are selected by a nomination and training and election process, uh, and we are going to uh, begin that process next Sunday. Uh, that Sunday, next Sunday, we'll begin, it's Reformation Sunday, uh, and that will be a week of prayer. That will kick off a week of prayer for our leadership, uh, and for nominating new officers. We will have a nomination guide out on the resource table uh, next Sunday that you can take home. And as you pray, you can read through that document, uh, that guide that kind of helps you understand what each office does. What do elders do? What do deacons do? Uh, and what kind of people, what kind of men are we looking for to nominate for those offices? And goes on to explain all of that. So, but next week will be a week of prayer for that process. Uh, and then nominations will be open through the month of November. I just wanted to go ahead and give you a heads up about that so that you can begin preparing your heart for that process. Um, let's turn, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. If you uh, don't have your own copy of God's Word, there should be a Bible in the chair in front of you. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. Uh, should be on page 814, today's passage. And what we've been seeing as we've been walking through uh, Matthew's gospel, especially in these last two chapters, in chapters 8 and 9, is Jesus is displaying his power. Uh, he displays his power to heal diseases so over uh, physical ailments. He displays his power over nature by stilling the storm. Last week, we saw Jesus display his power over evil forces uh, when he cast out demons. And, I mean, most importantly, we see Jesus display his authority, his right to forgive sins. And what we're going to look at uh, this week is we're going we're gonna to also see uh, that Jesus is beginning to face opposition, right? Uh, we saw that starting last week. We're going to see that more this week. Uh, Jesus is beginning to face opposition. Not everybody is crazy about Jesus. Uh, and so we're going to see in today's passage that even uh, as Jesus attracts some, he also repels others. Uh, and so let's, let's give our attention uh, to God's word. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, remember we've said that 
when it says reclined at table, that what we're talking about here is, is a dinner party. It was common. The table was low to the ground, and so you ate by reclining on your left side and grabbing food off the table with your right hand. So this is a, this is a dinner party that Jesus is at. Uh, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we've heard your word read, and now as we hear it preached, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things. Holy Spirit, would you come? We pray that the word, you would cause the word to come with power to our hearts, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, uh, when Jesus healed the paralytic, he claimed at the same time that he had the authority to forgive sins. And we saw a group of people called the scribes. They were the experts in the law. They were the teachers of the day. They, took, they had a beef with Jesus for saying that. They felt like Jesus was blaspheming. And so uh, Jesus heals the paralytic to prove to them that he can, that he has the authority, the right to forgive sins. Uh, and now Matthew uh, connects us to that passage when he says, uh, as Jesus passed on from there. Uh, so as Jesus left from the house where he had healed the paralytic, he goes through the city uh, and he sees Matthew and he calls Matthew. And I want you to remember that the, the, the point of last week was that Jesus has this authority for, to forgive sins. And we heard him say that in verse 6. And then I want you to know that in verse 13, he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In between those two sayings of Jesus, we have the call of Matthew. And what's, what Matthew's doing here, what he's showing us, is he's, he's showing us in real time what Jesus means. When Jesus comes to forgive sinners, Matthew gives us an example by showing, giving us his own testimony, his own story of when Jesus called him. Um, and... Just like with the paralytic, we see that there are some groups who object to what Jesus is doing. And we're going to look at that as well. So three things I want us to look at this morning. 
One is the power of Jesus' call. Two is the point of Jesus' mission. And then three is the end of self-made religion. Let's look at the power of Jesus' call. I want you to notice something. Matthew doesn't go looking for Jesus. Jesus comes looking for Matthew. And he sees them there. Uh, He sees Matthew there sitting in his tax booth. Matthew would have been a customs officer. Uh, It was his job as goods passed from one part of the Roman Empire to another through Capernaum. It was Matthew's job to collect taxes on those goods. Now, tax collectors were not particularly well-liked by their fellow Jews. In fact, it's why you hear that phrase together, tax collectors and sinners. To be one was to be the other. Uh, Tax collectors were not well-liked for two reasons. One, they were collaborators with the Roman government. In a sense, they worked for the enemy. They worked for the oppressor. I want you to think about, uh, and I'm in no way comparing the Pharisees of Jesus' day with uh, totalitarian regimes of our own day. But I want you to think about how uh, those who collaborated with the U.S. government, both in Iraq and in Afghanistan, were viewed by those within their own countries, right? Uh, Those who did not want the U.S. there viewed them as aiding and abetting the enemy, and they did not like them, right? Their lives were in danger. So the tax collectors were not viewed, viewed positively because they worked for the the enemy. They work for the bad guy. Not only that, but many of them were also corrupt, right? They would add to the Roman tax to increase, to kind of line their own pockets, right? So if the, if the tax was, I don't know, 5%, a tax collector might tack on, I don't know, another one, 2%, right? They would, they would line their own pockets at the expense of their people, So you can see why people were not a fan of tax collectors. In general, the general view of tax collectors is that they're corrupt, they're dishonest, they're unpatriotic. And so Jesus sees Matthew sitting in his kiosk by the road, and he says to Matthew, follow me. And very simply, Matthew follows him. In fact, that's all Matthew tells us about his own conversion. He doesn't say anything about himself. In fact, Matthew doesn't speak at all in any of the gospel accounts. It's Luke. We learn from Luke's gospel. It's Luke who tells us that Matthew left everything to follow Jesus. And by everything, we mean everything. He left his job. And he didn't go back. Right, some of the fishermen who followed Jesus, they could go back to fishing. But Matthew, he couldn't go back to work as a tax collector. He left his job, and with it, right, he left a lucrative job. He left a lot of money, a lot of comfort, a lot of security. He left a stable future. He left the protection of the Roman government. All to follow a carpenter. Why? That's the power of Jesus' call. Jesus gives us an indication of this in John 10, 27 through 29, when he says, he calls himself the good shepherd. He says, I'm the good shepherd. Then he says this, 
My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That's the call that Matthew hears. Obviously not with his ears, but in his heart. When Matthew hears Jesus' voice, when he hears Jesus say to him, follow me, there's a sense in which Jesus makes Matthew an offer he can't refuse. He sees that what, what Jesus has in store for him is so much better than everything he currently has that he cannot help but get up, lock the door, and walk away. Theologians call this the effectual call. We're familiar with the general call. We heard it this morning in Matthew 11, where Jesus says, Come, all who are weary and heavy laden. But the effectual call in Scripture is not just one that you hear with your ears, but it actually comes in and it changes your heart. And it opens your eyes. It causes you to see your own need and to see how beautiful Jesus is. So that you cannot help but follow him. That's the power of Jesus' call. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, a teaching tool that our church uses, says this. The effectual calling is the work of God's spirit. Whereby convincing us of our sin and misery. Enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ. And renewing our wills. He persuades And enables us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. Matthew hears the call of a shepherd and he cannot help but follow. That's the power of the call. And that's why Jesus has come. Jesus has come to call people like Matthew. That's the point of his mission. What's the first thing that Matthew does after following Jesus? He throws a party. He celebrates. He throws a party and he invites his friends to come and to meet Jesus. There's a good lesson in here about evangelism. That, and, and you see it throughout the beginning of John's gospel as well. That when these men meet Jesus for the first time, they go to their friends and they say, Come and see. Come and see. We think about evangelism like a sales pitch. Like, oh gosh, I don't want to talk to somebody about Jesus. This is going to be terrible. Right? But for these men who, who heed the call, they, they've come to experience a joy and a freedom that they've never known before. And they cannot help but say, come and see. So Matthew sends an invitation to all of his fellow tax collectors and sinners. And he says, Come to the house tonight. Let's have dinner together. I want you to meet Jesus. Again, Matthew doesn't tell us it's his house. He says the house. It's Mark and Luke who have to tell us that. So Matthew's humility remains. He, he, he would prefer to stay in the background and put the spotlight on Jesus. But he throws a dinner party for his fellow tax collectors and sinners. And they come and Jesus has dinner with them. 
then the Pharisees catch wind of it. And they're not very happy about it. Now, who are the Pharisees? The word Pharisee means separated one. They were very serious about uh, God's law in the Old Testament. And they were so serious about keeping it and trying to get others to keep it that they actually developed this whole tradition. Right? So if uh, we've talked about this before in sermons past, but right, if a command, let's say the, the command for the Sabbath. Uh, to honor the Sabbath, to do no work on the Sabbath. You have that command in God's law, but what the Pharisees would do is they would add things to it, different ways, traditions, so that you could know, like, well, is this work? Is this not work? Am I resting? Am I not resting? And so the Pharisees, you know, they would unroll this long scroll that, like, would hit the bottom and go to the end of the room and be like, well, here's how you know. If you just follow all of these things, you might know then if you were keeping the Sabbath or not. Right? So they were very serious about God's law, They were very serious about trying to keep it and helping others to keep it. And they viewed themselves as separated, particularly from people like the tax collectors who collaborated with unclean Gentiles and sinners who didn't have the same righteousness that they did. They didn't have the same affinity for religion that the Pharisees did. Now, You may not have a very, when you hear the word self-righteous, you you may not have a very keen picture of what that looks like, right? Usually we hear the word self-righteous or we hear the word Pharisee and we we kind of, you know, we we get a picture in our mind of this like proud, angry person. But I imagine if we lived in first century uh, Israel, that you probably would have rather had a Pharisee for a neighbor than a tax collector. You certainly would have rather had a Pharisee for a neighbor than a hooker. Right? They kept their yard clean. Their kids were well behaved. They probably helped you clean your yard. These were good people. The problem is they were self-righteous people. They stood on their own righteousness And what that caused them to do was have a negative view of those who did not follow their rules. Uh, The Pharisees are one part of uh, the Jewish ruling body called the Sanhedrin. The other part, and we'll meet them later, were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the liberal party. The Pharisees were the conservative party. And so they hear about this. This dinner with Jesus and these sinners, and they do not like what they hear. Because to share the table with someone, to eat dinner with someone, implied friendship. It implies connection. And so, automatically, they think, hmm, Jesus is hanging out with the wrong crowd. And so, they go to, the, they go to Jesus' disciples. Oddly enough, they don't go to Jesus himself. They go to his disciples, and they ask one of those questions that's not really a question. You familiar with these? You know this guy in, in school? I had, there were these guys in seminaries. They wanted to make a statement, but they didn't want to look like they were too big for their own britches. So they turned that statement into a question. Right? That's what the Pharisees do here. They say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I don't think they really want to know the answer to that. The implication in the question is, 
if your teacher was really a, a true teacher, if your teacher was really a godly man, surely he wouldn't be eating dinner with those people. That's what's going on. And so Jesus answers, hears about this, and he answers their question in verses 12 and 13. When he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, this is exactly who I'm supposed to be having dinner with. Because this is exactly who I came for. I came for people who know that they need me. That's why I am here. And then he tells these religious experts, these experts in the law, to go back and study their book a little bit closer. He says, go, go and learn what this means. And he quotes from Hosea 6.6. 6. He talks about, I desire, where God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, what was going on in Hosea? In Hosea's day, the people of Israel, they were going through the religious motions. They were bringing all of the correct sacrifices. They were doing what you were supposed to do. They were being good religious people. But they missed the mercy of God. They were neglecting, right? They, they weren't doing those things with a heart towards God or their neighbors. They were doing the sacrifices, but they missed the mercy of God. They were making a religious performance, but their hearts were far from God. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, if you understood the heart of God, A, you would know why I'm eating with tax collectors and sinners. And B, you would be eating with them too. Jesus is rebuking them. And so, Jesus may also be rebuking us. We are, for the most part, a room, I would imagine, full of good, religious, conservative people. People for whom self-righteousness comes very easily. We have our lives pretty well put together. We, have, we, we say and do or seek to say and do all of the right things. And so it can be easy for us to be self-righteous. And so we have to be very careful. We need to heed Jesus' warning to us. Seeking to do good for the glory of God, that's one thing. Jesus is not opposed to that. But that is not what self-righteousness is. Self-righteousness is standing on your own righteousness. It's missing the fact that you too are a sinner. And that's what Jesus wants the Pharisees to see. You need me too. You need me just as much as the tax collectors and sinners do. You're just blind to it. Friend, I don't want us to be blind to it. And the main way that it was apparent that they were blind to it is because they avoided and excluded others who did not look like them, who did not follow their pattern of righteousness. And friend, that does not square with the ministry of Jesus. 
the ministry of Jesus is one where he eats with tax collectors and sinners. Now, by having dinner with tax collectors and sinners, that doesn't make Jesus a sinner. That was the implication of the Pharisees. Well, if you're having dinner with them, you probably are one. But that's not true. He's not, Jesus doesn't go to dinner with them to approve of their way of life. He doesn't go to dinner with them to join them in their sin. Neither of those things are true. Remember, he just called Matthew out of his old way of life into the new one. He's not going to dinner with tax collectors and sinners to join them in their sin. He's going to bring them out of their sin. But in order to do that, he has to go to them. The doctor can't heal the sick if he doesn't see sick people. The doctor has to get his hands dirty. He has to go to where the sick people are and bring healing to them. That's what Jesus has come to do. He goes to sinners and he brings with them his mercy. That's the mission of Jesus. And so, for those of us who are in danger of being self-righteous, do you see your need? Do you see your own sin sickness? Your own, your own default desire to kind of stand on your own two religious feet rather than run to the mercy of Jesus? Repent. Repent of your self-righteousness and run to Jesus. Are you willing to share the table with tax collectors so they can receive his mercy as well. Let me address the other group as well. Right on the one hand, give the self-righteous. But what about those here of tender conscience? Who are anxious and worried that I'm a little too dirty for Jesus. My sin is more than he's probably willing to bear. Jesus doesn't want me. My past is too messy. My mouth is too foul. My sin's too gross. Friend, Jesus comes to call the, not the righteous, but sinners. Jesus comes exactly for you. The final point is a little bit harder to understand what's going on. I think what we see here is the end of man-made, self-made religion. John's disciples, uh, John the Baptist, he had a group of followers. John's already in prison, but his followers come to Jesus and they ask him a question. They see Jesus feasting and they go, hey, how come, how come you're not fasting? We fast and the Pharisees fast. But your disciples don't fast. Why are you feasting and not fasting? Now, what is fasting and why is it done? What are they asking about? Well, fasting, you may be familiar, is a discipline, especially in a religious context. It's a discipline where you deny something good to yourself so that you can increase your longing for God. That's, that's fasting in its purest sense. 
It's usually connected with prayer. And only, it's a discipline of self-denial, okay? Um, And only one fast was commanded in the Old Testament law, and that was on the Day of Atonement. But what happened is that the Pharisees, again, we've got to, We've got to be more conservative than God, so let's develop some more religious tradition that we can be proud of. And so the Pharisees fasted twice a week, not just once a year, but twice a week. And it would appear that the disciples of John are doing something similar. And so they come to Jesus, and they're like, hey, what's, you know, the implication might be, I think that their question is probably a little bit more honest than that of the Pharisees, but they're still like, okay, your ministry Jesus doesn't look like what we think ministry should look like, right? This is what holy people do, and this is what you're doing. So what's going on here? And Jesus answers their question with a question. Don't you love it when people do that? He says, can the wedding guests mourn while the bridegroom is with them? So fasting attached to mourning. What's he saying? So the the wedding guests would be closer to what we would call the groomsmen. And Jesus is saying, can the groomsmen not party while the groom is with them? Right? This is a time for celebration. It's not a time for mourning and fasting. This is a time for celebration. Jesus is calling himself the groom. And in doing so, he borrows an image from the Old Testament where God calls himself the groom of his people. In fact, the book that Jesus just quoted from, Hosea, that's the central image. God is the faithful husband, and his people are the unfaithful bride. And he is always going after them. He is the one who pursues us. And so Jesus is saying, that's me. I am the groom. And since I'm here, here are the groomsmen, it's time to celebrate. You don't fast at a wedding, right? It would be odd if you were to go to a wedding... And, you know, at the reception afterwards, you got all this great food, uh, and you just went over and you stood in a corner. And you didn't dance, you didn't smile, and you didn't eat. Everybody would be like, what is wrong with that person? Right? You would be out of place. That's not, the, that's not the proper occasion for that. And that's what Jesus says to them. It's not the proper occasion for that right now. Now he goes on, he says, right, there will be a day when the bridegroom is taken away. He's referring to his death, and I think also his resurrection and ascension. There will be a day when Jesus is no longer physically present with his people. And in that day, it will be appropriate to fast. There will be times for fasting in the Christian life. In fact, we see in the book of Acts, the early church fasts often. In fact, it's always connected with prayer. And we see it when we see it in Acts. They fast and they pray before they select new leadership. And that's what we're going to be calling you to do in the coming week. We're calling you to pray. I would encourage you to fast as well. Maybe choose a day where you skip lunch or dinner. If you're not accustomed to fasting, maybe just one meal. If you are, maybe two. But set aside some time to fast and to pray over who will lead Grace Fellowship. That is, a, that is a right and proper use of fasting. We see that the church can do that. But here, 
Jesus is saying, what you want us to do doesn't fit what I'm doing. He says that a new day is here. And I'm, I'm not here to patch up your man-made religion. I'm not here to take your religious forms and turn them into something better. I'm here to replace them all together. This is a new day. I'm doing a new thing. And he uses these two illustrations of a patch. I've, you know, like sewed three things in my entire life. But if you've sewed, you probably understand what he's talking about. Right? That if you, if you put a patch that isn't shrunk on a threadbare, worn-out garment, the very first time that patch gets washed, it'll just rip a new hole in the garment. So you made a worse mess. Same thing with fermenting wine. Right? Wine skins... Uh, the first time around would be elastic, right? They would expand as the wine fermented. But an old wine skin has lost its elasticity. So if you poured wine that is still in the process of fermenting into that wine skin that has no elasticity, it explodes the skin and you lose your wine. Right? So it's a double loss. Jesus is saying, I'm not here to just patch up the old stuff. I'm here to do something completely new. And that, is, and that is cause for celebration and joy. And so, friend, I don't know where you find yourself this morning. If you fall on the side of the, the self-righteous or the sinner, how you would identify yourself this morning. But I want you to hear Jesus' call. Jesus does not come for those who pretty themselves up. Jesus does not come for religious, self-righteous do-gooders. Jesus comes for the sick. Jesus comes for those who know they need him. Do you know your need? Do you know your sickness? Then run to him and throw yourself on his mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would hear Jesus' call to us this morning, just like Matthew did in that booth 2,000 years ago, that we would know our need and that we, you, we would hear you say, follow me. God in heaven, would you show us, show us our sinfulness, show us our need of you, and cause us to run to you and know your mercy. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response together.